Hello, fantasy and supernatural fans, and welcome to episode two of Colleen M. Stories, The Beached Ones. I'm Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. If you find yourself loving this book as much as we do, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway this week, where one lucky winner will receive the full audiobook of The Beached Ones for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter, and answer a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry. So make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy. Warning. This audiobook touches upon themes of suicide, abuse, and self-harm, and may be disturbing to some listeners. Previously on The Beached Ones. Disoriented and suffering from memory loss, Daniel reconnects with his ex-girlfriend Jolene, yet the reunion is rocky. While seeking answers online, he discovers that his motocross team believes him to be dead after a horrible stunt-related accident. Jolene, too, seems to think him a ghost, even though she can touch him. But Daniel is not convinced. Now we pick up the story when Daniel is short on options. He's got no wallet, no transportation, and no way to get in touch with his best friend. Somehow, he has to get to San Francisco to pick up his younger brother in only five days. Can Jolene help? And if so, can she be trusted? Chapter 4 Classical music played on the tinny desk radio, violins swimming gently over a floating melody, while the basses supported them from underneath. His friend, Jay, a diehard rock fan, would make fun of him if he knew, but Daniel needed it to study. It was the only way he could concentrate. Knee-deep in his math homework, he was staring at the numbers and symbols, struggling to comprehend the formula when Tony interrupted. Bet you don't know what this is. Half irritated and half relieved, he looked up to see his brother's arm extended through the doorway of their shared bedroom, a toy dinosaur clutched in his fingers. The rest of him remained hidden behind the wall. A dinosaur, Daniel said. Duh. Tony took the answer as permission and entered making the dinosaur move through the air as if it were walking. Reaching the bunk bed against the wall, he hopped backward, landing on Daniel's bottom bunk. Bet you don't know what kind it is. Guessing the dinosaur was a regular game between them. Daniel bought bags of the plastic toys whenever he could scrape the money together, ordering them from the man at the downtown toy store to be sure he never got the same bag twice. He set his pencil down to study the latest creature dancing in his brother's hands. 
It was army green and had a short, stout head with two rows of spines along its back. Stegosaurus? No. Tony drew out the word. They have big spikes. He has little ones. And his head is smaller, see? He lifted the dinosaur again for Daniel's inspection. Daniel leaned his elbows on his knees. Hmm. Is that the Brachiosaurus, or whatever it's called? No! The Brachiosaurus has a long neck. This one has almost no neck at all. Tony tucked his chin down into his throat, trying to make his neck disappear and succeeding only at resembling a toad. See his tail? Daniel covered his mouth to hide his smile. Looks like a club. That's the clue. Clubosaurus? Tony laughed, one of his belly laughs that scattered invisible sparks all around the room. Clubosaurus! <laughs> so what is he? Ankylosaurus. Ankylosaurus? I don't see anything on him that looks like an ankle. No, 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 it's because of the species he was. And what was that, the ankle species? Tony laughed again. Never mind. So what is it? Meat eater or plant eater? Plants. With all that armor? He has horns. So the T-Rex will leave him alone. Tony got off the bed and made the toy walk on Daniel's desk. What are you doing? Math. Can I help? You haven't learned this yet. It's algebra. Tony brought the dinosaur up to his brother's face, as if it were the one speaking. When will you be done? Another hour. Then can we play Apocalypse? The end of the world. Tony's favorite game. The day the meteors, baseballs, and tennis balls fell from the sky in the snow, shredded paper, blew from the north, and the dinosaurs were wiped off the face of the earth. Daniel promised to play as soon as his math was done if Tony would agree to something different this time, like death from volcanic explosions or earthwide fire. His brother wrinkled his nose but then agreed to find a new idea. Just not one of those. A little over an hour later, they were destroying the ancient world, though it wasn't snow and meteors this time but a disease spread by tiny bugs in the form of pebbles. Rashes, ketchup, and blisters, whipped cream, erupted on the dinosaur's leathery skin until, writhing in agony, they all fell to their doom, only to be brought back, wiped clean, by the god that was Tony Donati. When it was over, Daniel made macaroni and cheese out of a box, and they ate while watching television. It was a good night because their mother had to work late and didn't come back until long after they'd gone to sleep. A knock sounded at the door. Daniel sat up in bed. It took him a minute to realize he'd been dreaming about Tony in the apocalypse. The sight of the large television, heavy drapes, and cheesy flower prints on the wall brought him back to the hotel room Jolene had gotten for him. He checked the clock. A little past nine. He'd meant to lie down for a while, but that was two hours ago. Tap, tap, tap. A gentle knock. He checked himself. 
He'd showered immediately after entering the room, but he had no clean clothes. The sweat-stained shirt he couldn't stand, so he'd left it off, going bare-chested and barefoot with only his jeans on. It would have to do. Daniel, it's me. Open up. Coming! He opened the door. Jolene stood half-hidden behind a stack of folded clothes. Some clean ones, she said, handing them over. They settled solidly on his palms and smelled of fresh laundry detergent. They may be a little small. He's not as tall as you are. Daniel nearly dropped them. They were his. He stepped aside to allow Jolene in, then followed her, letting the door shut behind them. He ditched the clothes on the edge of the first bed. Some toothpaste and stuff. She set a white sack on the table by the window and then turned to look at him. Her gaze lingered on his bare chest. You should try one on. Be sure they're going to fit. Daniel turned his gaze back to the stack of clothes. A price tag slid out of the pile. The accompanying shirt had a rich, dark green color with long sleeves, buttons, and a stiff collar. A nicer shirt than he usually wore. It appeared brand new. He slipped his arms into it. Well, he said. She smiled a little. Looks good on you. He finished buttoning and thrust his hands into his pockets, the F-14 Tomcat cool against his fingers. She had showered too, her hair damp and slicked back, her small frame hidden in gray sweats. She cast her gaze around the room and crossed her arms. It was too hot. The first time he'd noticed it. Oh, the food. She passed him by in a blink, headed for the door. I didn't have enough hands. Let me help. He went after her, pausing only when he stood at the hallway in his bare feet. It's okay, I'll get it. He found his shoes, pulled them on, swiped the key off the television stand, and charged out after her. There was no motorcycle in the parking lot. He spotted her hoodie over by a white Ford F-150. She was standing at the driver's side door. When he came up behind her, she handed him a warm paper sack that smelled like chicken, then reached in again and grabbed a second bag. Pizza or chicken, your choice. It smelled delicious. He followed her back inside, thinking only after the door had closed behind them that she'd had to buy it for him again. She set her bag on the table by the window and then flopped down on the far bed where he'd been lying and tucked two pillows behind her. She looked tired for only 9.30. Daniel put his bag next to hers and glanced her way. His first instinct was to lie down next to her, but he took a seat at the table instead dumped the bag on its side, and pulled the styrofoam cartons out. The first held the chicken. He grabbed the leg and took a bite. Want some? I already ate. With Brent, most likely. He chewed for a while, then... So, who's this Brent anyway? When she didn't answer, he tried again. Your boyfriend? She shrugged. 
He's... She fiddled with the pillowcase next to her. He's helped me a lot. So he's your boyfriend? She rolled her eyes, signaling he'd get no more out of her. He dropped the clean leg bone onto a napkin and took the thigh. Thanks for this, by the way. She pushed herself up, restacking the pillows behind her. We have to talk about tomorrow. I'm calling Jay, my friend from the team. I know. I met Jay. Her gaze was curious. Did he remember? After that. You know something else you're not telling me? You saw what it said on the website. He didn't need reminding. The words kept bubbling up in his head. As a result of a tragic accident. And you saw how Isabella reacted. I think she was playing with you. She doesn't play that way. He poked his nose into the first bag again and then the second one. Finding nothing to drink, he set the half-eaten thigh on a napkin and got up. Water? Thanks. He returned with two full plastic cups, gave one to her, and sat down again. I don't know what's going on with Diamond Extreme, but clearly I'm not dead. She didn't respond to that, so he wiped his lips and went back to eating, quickly polishing off the thigh. The next styrofoam bowl contained mashed potatoes. He started in on that. I thought you'd probably like the chicken, she said. You want the pizza? She hesitated, then nodded. He took the food to her, along with a napkin. When she reached for it, their fingers touched. Thanks. She let the box settle on her lap. I'll call Jay tomorrow, get it all straightened out. He swallowed another bite of potatoes. You can go on your trip with what's-his-name like you planned. Forget you ever saw me. He regretted it the instant he said it. It came out cold, like he didn't care about seeing her. Stupid. She chewed, the smell of pepperoni filling the room. The air was still stifling. Daniel turned the dial on the cooler. The fan started to hum. He sat back down, drained the cup of water, and stood up to refill it. He glanced at Jolene's, but hers was still three-quarters full. When he returned, she'd stopped eating, only one bite missing from her slice of pizza. He gestured toward it. Not as good? It's fine. He went back to his potatoes. He'd messed things up now. Thanks again, by the way. For all this. He gestured to the food and the clothes. She forced a tight-lipped smile that quickly faded. When he said nothing more, she replaced her slice of pizza in the box, closed the lid, and sat up. Poised on the edge of the bed, she glanced around the room. You didn't finish, was all he could think to say. 
She walked past him to the desk against the wall. Finding the hotel notepad, she wrote something down, then tore the sheet off and handed it to him. You can get me here, if by some chance you don't get Jay or whatever. Daniel took the paper. Brent's cell phone, probably. We'll be leaving by ten, so... She hesitated, then started for the door. Daniel stuffed the paper into his pocket and hurried after her. When she turned back, she scanned his torso. That's a good color on you. She gave him a parting glance and walked away. A voice screamed at him to say something, do something to stop her. But he only stood in the hallway and watched until she was gone. Chapter 5 The artichoke green linoleum was cracked in multiple locations, creating the perfect obstacle course for any rolling toy. The worst had curled upwards, forming a dangerous ridge hungry for passing toes. For that reason, it usually lay hidden under the dining room table, but Daniel had pulled the table into the living room and now sat under the kitchen sink, his back against the cabinets. Tony had taken up a position opposite him by the front door, his legs spread like bumpers. Today was Demolition Derby Day, a competition they held at least once a month. Miniature vehicles of all types tested their metal over the Great Ridge, some flying over it and others stalling in the middle of it. Tony and Daniel rooted for the ones that would power through and stay upright all the way to the other side. The F-14 Tomcat had been Daniel's favorite from his earliest memory. He'd kept it through all their moves, always in his pocket so it wouldn't get lost in the boxes, like so many of his other things did. When he was nine years old and the new baby came, he'd used it to get acquainted, rolling it along the top of the crib and flying it through the space overhead. How fun it had been to see Tony's big blue eyes glued to the wings, his little arms and legs squirming with pleasure when Daniel dropped the jet closer to him. The best part was the way he'd squealed with delight when the plane landed on his chest and then rolled across it, back and forth over the cotton shirt with the blue teddy bears. Later, Daniel would push it across the breakfast table with a whoosh, take off into the air and bank around to drop a Fruit Loop bomb on the high chair tray, after which Tony would stuff it into his mouth and then thrust his hand out for the next one. The plane soon became the source of several requests. Play Danny Airplane! Tony would wait to eat until the plane dropped whatever it was from the sky above. Their mother, Valerie, warned Daniel that he was setting himself up for a lifetime of plane feedings, but Daniel ignored her, dropping pieces of sandwich and potato chips and cut-up apples and macaroni noodles one after another onto the tray. Tony would wait to sleep, too, until the plane had made its tour of the crib. Later, he made up his own games, building new worlds for the plane to live in, from cardboard box multi-tiered hangars to undiscovered country behind the couch to burrowed shelters in the backyard dirt. But always he was happy to return the toy to his older brother. Daniel knew he was growing too mature for such things 
but he couldn't let the plane go until he turned 14 and Tony was five. As the Christmas season approached, there was no money for gifts, Daniel having used all his earnings from his work at the mechanics shop for everyday essentials like food and clothing. On Christmas Eve, he looked around his room at all his toys and even thought about making one with a few nails and scraps of wood. But in the end, he wrapped the metal jet in some gently used holiday paper he'd found in the school trash can and left the present under the three-foot-high turquoise tree Valerie had confiscated from the bar's storage room. He feared it would be a disappointment, something old rather than new, but when Tony unwrapped it the next morning, his mouth curled up in a smile. It's just like yours, Danny. He rushed across the room in bare feet, oversized cream-colored pajama pants threatening to fall off his waist. Daniel smiled, determined to keep his mouth shut. But Tony caught the shift in his gaze. He examined the plane more closely. His smile faded. This is your plane. I'm giving it to you for Christmas. But it's your plane. I want you to have it. I know how much you like it. Tony extended his arm, the toy firmly in his grasp. You keep it. Daniel shook his head. It's yours now. But I don't want you to be sad. Daniel studied his brother's face then and wondered where he had come from. There were no other presents under the tree. Valerie had already told them the pancakes they were soon to have for breakfast were all Santa could afford. She was stirring the mix in a bowl, the smell of cooking oil wafting up from the stove. Tony set the plane in his palm. Daniel pushed it back. I'll be sad if you don't take it. That's what Christmas is about, Valerie said in her sometimes sweet voice as she set the bowl aside and reached for a carton of eggs, her sandy hair combed and soft against her face, cigarette a miniature chimney in her hand. Giving. Tony turned the plane around in his hands, and for a moment Daniel wasn't sure he was going to go along with it. But finally he grinned and wrapped his arms around Daniel's neck. Daniel wrestled with him after that, tickling him until he squealed and begged him to stop. Back and forth on the kitchen floor, the Chevy Camaro and the Dodge truck and the cat backhoe and the long red fire truck competed with one another to see which could overcome the Great Ridge. From the point of view of the toys, it formed a rugged peak, sharp and intimidating like the mother of all frost heaves. The crevice at the apex, a dark hole, in which a set of tires could disappear and never return. Taking a burst of power from Daniel's thrust hand, the Camaro flew over the top and landed upright on the other side. The truck made it over too, but then lost control and dropped onto its fender, slamming into the displaced table leg. The backhoe hit the first rise and stopped completely, its extended shovel draped uselessly in the air. The fire truck managed to get its front tires over, but then got held up by its long midsection, the ridge poking its jagged edges into the truck's metal underbelly. The boys commented on each vehicle's fate with a series of exclamations, groans, and shouts of surprise. 
but then there was only one vehicle left. A respectful silence fell over the kitchen. Okay, Tony rubbed his hands together. Time for the plane. To Tony, it was always just the plane. Daniel had explained what an F-14 Tomcat was, a fighter, a twin-engine war destroyer, but to Tony, it would always be the plane. Ducking his head to get the best view, he waited, the tip of his tongue hovering at the corner of his mouth. Daniel revved the plane back and forth in front of him, eyeing the ridge. He would have to hit it just right, angled a little off-center, and propelled with sufficient velocity, or the toy wouldn't make it over. Instead, it would likely hit, go airborne, and crash under the table, or plunge its pointed nose into the ridges and promptly land on its back. He'd gotten it right only a few times out of the many he'd tried, but Tony was always ready to catch it just in case. One, two, three. The silver jet rolled, hit the ridge, and became airborne. The nose pointed toward the smoke-stained ceiling. Tail fins aligned for a perfect flight out the small square window in the front door. Daniel watched, hopeful, but he had pushed it just a little too far to the right. The wing dipped, the rise not as steep as he had hoped. As it reached the peak of its ascent and was about to succumb to gravity, two small hands clasped around it. Altitude successfully reached, sir. Tony opened his hands. The jet lay safe in his palms. Let's try again, straighter this time. At nine o'clock the following morning, Daniel emerged from the hotel office, having read eight online articles about his own death. Most were posted on motocross blogs and websites. One had appeared in the Butte paper, the Montana Standard. It gave the best overview of the supposed facts. The Diamond Extreme Motocross team had performed at the Butte Silver Bow County Fair on August 2nd, three weeks before Daniel arrived in Iowa. The last series of jumps were all crowd-pleasers. Then Shepard rode into place, paused at the starting line, and, flicking a lighter, lit the top of a pointed object he held in his left hand. A sparkling flame ignited and danced, bright colors alive in the night. Something to give the audience an extra thrill, the announcer mused. They cheered as Daniel pocketed the lighter and, still holding the flame, pulled the throttle and rode up the ramp. Once airborne, he thrust the flame skyward. The audience roared its approval. Then, at the apex of his arc, he brought it back down. Time seemed to stand still as he hovered midair. Then there was a startling explosion, engulfing Shepard and the bike in flames and ejecting Shepard off his bike. The Kawasaki landed on the ramp and crashed into the dirt below. Shepard's body dropped at the edge of the arena, still encased in flames. Emergency crews put the fire out, but Shepard was pronounced dead at the scene. His mother, who lived in Butte, could not be reached for comment. The cause of the accident was under investigation. Every post had a picture, but most were of the jump before the fire. 
In those, the rider wore Daniel's colors and rode a Kawasaki the same model as his. Other shots showed something burning in the air, but no details beyond that. Only one had captured the explosion itself, a ball of fire suspended between the ramps. Daniel grabbed a bowl of cereal from the breakfast nook, ate it quickly, then retired to his room. He still hadn't been able to reach Jay, and when he'd called the office again, there was no answer. His email inbox was filled with junk. Unable to remember his account number, he hadn't been able to gain access to his money. He'd written a note to Coach Greg, telling him that despite what it said on the website, he was alive and well and would be back in Reno soon. But after an hour at the computer, he was no closer to solving his problem than he had been before. He glanced at the clock. In another thirty minutes, Jolene would be gone. He sat on the bed and called the motocross office again. When he still couldn't reach anyone, he realized he had only one choice left. He winced at the thought of it. She would put him through the third degree. For ten minutes he argued with himself before finally picking up the phone once more. Sucking air into his lungs, he listened, his heartbeat accelerating with each ring in his ear. 941. If she'd worked the night shift, she would still be asleep. Third ring. Fourth. Finally, a click. Yeah? A smoker's voice, gravelly and phlegm-filled. She coughed three times, the sound exploding in his eardrum. He imagined her head on the pillow, eyes still closed, sandy hair free of the ponytail she often wore, but still holding the conical shape at the back of her head. Valerie, it's me. Daniel? A quick intake of breath, then... Who is this? It's Daniel. Sorry to wake you. I just need to talk for a second. No response. I'm in Iowa and I lost my wallet. Look, if you can lend me some cash, I'll pay you back double. Within a week. I wouldn't ask, but I'm kind of in trouble. Something weird has happened. Do you know if we did a show there three weeks ago? The phone remained deadly silent. Valerie? Click. Daniel stared at the earpiece, then slammed it down on the phone. Damn it! Typical. The one time he really needed her. He felt like throwing the whole thing across the room, but after a few rapid exhales, grabbed the earpiece and redialed. No answer. He tried one more time, but she was ignoring it now. He let fly a string of curses and clenched his fists. Nothing she did should surprise him, but for some reason this did. She'd never missed out on an opportunity to lecture him about one thing or another. He'd counted on that. He'd never expected silence. He plunged his hand into his pocket and gripped the toy plane, feeling its solid metal shape against his palm. It was getting late and he was out of options. With a long inhale, he moved his gaze once more to the phone. He had to call Jolene. 9.50. He paced the room.
She had her new boyfriend. She'd moved on. 9.52. He pulled a piece of crumpled notepad paper from his other pocket. Smoothing it with his fingers, he stared at the numbers she had written, allowing three more precious minutes to go by before approaching the phone once again. Tentatively, he reached for the earpiece, but then stopped. 9.56. They were going to Washington. He'd be messing up their plans. Swallowing hard, he picked up the phone. It rested solidly in his palm. Taking a breath, he dialed. She answered after the first ring. Hello? It's me. He gripped the earpiece hard to still his trembling. I need your help. She took so long to respond, he feared she would refuse. We'll be there in about twenty minutes. He hung up and sat down. She was coming. It would be all right. He waited for the nervousness to fade, then got up, gathered the clothes she'd brought him, and, leaving the key on the TV stand, headed out. He was sitting on the green bench in front of the hotel when the Ford F-150 pulled into the parking lot. It looked intimidating, the shiny grill and open mouth bearing fangs. Daniel moved to the edge of the blacktop, eager to get this part over with. The thought of meeting Jolene's boyfriend was enough to make him puke. He cast his gaze upward. The sun was already high overhead, the temperature at least 80. It would be a blessing to ride in air conditioning at least. Hands in his pockets, he fingered the plane and tried to look nonchalant. Jolene's Suzuki was tied in the truck bed. It seemed an odd metaphor. Her vehicle tied to his, strapped down with a rope so it couldn't escape. He admonished himself. He didn't know the guy. The passenger door opened and Jolene slipped out. She wore jeans and a forest green long-sleeved blouse. The necklace Isabella had given her fighting with a purple stone for space at the hollow of her throat. Her hair was freshly washed and bouncy, and as she got closer she smiled, her green eyes sparkling like the surface of a lake. We match? She stopped in front of him and pointed to the green shirt he'd tried on for her the night before. He refrained from telling her it was the only one he could stomach wearing. The rest of the clothes lay in a pile on the bench. Wasn't that the plan? he asked. She blushed, then sobered. Now listen. She moved in closer, suddenly serious, her voice low. He doesn't know you're coming, but it's okay. He's not going to be able to see you. Just like Isabella, I need you to follow me into the back of the truck and keep quiet and he won't even know you're there, all right? Daniel frowned. Of course he'll see me. He's just a guy, not a strange psychic lady, he wanted to say, but didn't. I'm trying to help you. Will you just listen for once? The driver's side door opened. Daniel looked up to see a lanky man exiting the truck. Lean and relaxed, he paused to take a long inhale his gaze pointed north. 
rich walnut hair cascading in waves past the neck of his black woven shirt. Dark eyes looked out from under a firm brow, a neatly trimmed Van Dyke framing a straight, thoughtful mouth. Keep quiet, Jolene whispered. Let me handle this. Daniel watched as the guy came toward them, his hands easy in the pockets of his brown khaki slacks, his shoulders so loose it was as if he were flopped in a couch rather than walking. He emanated the air of someone concentrating on something else, a busy brain noodling over a math problem or pondering the meaning of life. But what struck Daniel most as he approached was how old he was. The guy had to be in his thirties, late thirties even. And this was who Jolene was living with? Daniel glanced at her, but she wasn't paying attention. She shifted her weight from foot to foot, obviously nervous about how all this was going to go. This is the guy? He said. Shh, she hissed. When he was nearly upon them, Brett glanced once at Jolene and then cast his gaze upward in a daydreaming sort of way, perhaps to check out the roof of the building or the air conditioning vents, or maybe the brown gutters leading from the roof to the sidewalk. Daniel couldn't tell which and wasn't really interested until the guy lowered his gaze and leveled it on his. The look was intense but removed at the same time as if Brent was just as unhappy about meeting Daniel as Daniel was about meeting him, but in front of Jolene wanted to act like he was unconcerned. So, you're Daniel. Daniel glanced at Jolene. She looked from one man to the other, speechless. And you're Brent, he said, going for the same long-suffering tone. How did you... Jolene started, then stopped, her gaze on Brent. I mean... Brent smiled, one of those sensuous, not-quite-all-the-way smiles that girls swooned over. I saw your picture. The one of you and him at the museum. And you've been all secretive. Did you think I couldn't put two and two together? The picture at the museum. Daniel thought back. They'd visited an art museum in Des Moines. She'd worn a green blouse. They'd had their picture taken. He'd kept his copy in his desk drawer. She was wearing the same blouse now, the very same one, with the ribbon tie at the shoulder. Jolene's face flushed. I'll get these. She picked up the pile of clothes from the bench and walked to the truck leaving the two men to size each other up in her absence. Daniel waited a beat then. I appreciate this, he said. What? Brent said. She offered me a ride, Daniel said. When the guy looked surprised, he went on. Mentioned you guys could maybe drop me off somewhere on your way? He stopped. California wasn't on the way to Washington. I was in an accident and lost my wallet. He needs a ride, Jolene interrupted, coming back to stand in between them. I told him he could go with us. She was smiling too much, her hand gestures jerky. You know, for a ways. I didn't think it would be a problem. 
Brent's gaze shifted from one to the other. Daniel could almost read his thoughts. This was his trip with Jolene, a new start for them somewhere else. It's okay, he wanted to say. I'll find another way. But there was no other way. The three stood in awkward silence. Finally, Brent placed his hand on the back of Jolene's neck and gestured toward the truck. Welcome aboard. You can have the whole back seat to yourself. Chapter 6 The trailer home bathroom was too small for three people. Cramped and dingy, it offered only a pale yellow light from a single bare bulb in the center of the ceiling, the fixture having been shattered long ago. Tony, scratched and bloody, balanced precariously on the edge of the pink bathtub, Valerie standing in front of him armed with a wet washcloth. Dressed in a threadbare white tank top that drooped low enough to show her cleavage, she dragged the cloth over Tony's arm, cleaning off the dried blood to reveal mostly pale skin with a few mean-looking scrapes thrown in. Her strokes didn't change whether she was on healthy skin or torn, and Tony grimaced under her rough administrations. Daniel hovered in the doorway, feeling helpless. He was your responsibility, she said to him. You're the adult here. She paused to take a drag on her cigarette and then placed it back in the ashtray centered on the toilet seat lid. You have to watch out for him. I was. Daniel's gaze centered on Tony's tortured face. Why don't you let me do that? So you can mess this up too? Valerie glared at him, dark circles under her hazel eyes. That's all we'd need. Him getting tetanus or some infection because you didn't bother to clean him up right. She shoved the wounded arm low under the tub faucet, Tony nearly falling in after it. He stopped himself by grabbing the sink with his other hand. Valerie turned the water on and soaked the arm, the back of her thighs jiggling below green nylon shorts. That done, she directed Tony to stand up, turning his arm as if he were a marionette, and started in with a washcloth again this time on the side of his bloody face. Tony squeezed his eyes shut. My day off, and this is how I get to spend it. We were riding bikes. A crash was bound to happen. Bound to happen? He's six years old. You don't take a six-year-old on a gravel road. He doesn't belong out there with you and your buddies. I wanted to go, Tony mumbled. Sure you did, honey. She turned his face one direction and then the other, then started in on the back of his neck, working like she worked cleaning tables at the bar, what muscle she had in her thin arms bulging, her cheeks red. You want to do what Big Brother does, but you're nine years younger. You need time to grow. Daniel should know that. It was just a short gravel road. He lost his balance is all. Yeah, and what happens next time, hmm? He falls off a cliff somewhere. Then what are you going to tell me? It was bound to happen? For hell's sake, Daniel. I need some help around here. I can't do it all. I'm working 60 goddamn hours a week as it is. But last week you said they cut... Trying to keep you kids fed is all I do. 
She rinsed the blood and grime from the washcloth and turned Tony around, pushing one arm and then the other as if he were a rotating display rack, ending with one final inspection of his face. Two scrapes marred his cheek, one on top of the other like lines on paper. Look at this. We'll be lucky if it doesn't scar. Cool, Tony said. It is not cool. My baby's face all torn up. She finished cleaning and kissed him twice, once on his good cheek and once on his nose, and then let him go. Looking down at his legs, she shook her head. Those jeans, holes in them now. I'll have to fix those too. Give them to me, Daniel said. You don't know how to sew. Let me have them. Daniel waited until Tony took them off, then grabbed them and disappeared. You need to bathe now, Valerie said to Tony. Come on. Daniel heard the water start and the stopper click. Soap up everything, she commanded. All those little stones need to come out. You already washed it, Tony said. You heard me. She shut the bathroom door and walked into the boys' room. Daniel found the sewing kit and was sitting on the couch threading a needle when she emerged again, her sandy hair a bird's nest. She stopped behind him and watched, her breath stale and smoky. You really think you can fix those? I've got a patch. Daniel patted the patch he'd placed on the couch next to him. You're going to make a mess of it. Just go rest or whatever you were going to do. She hung back, exhaling smoke. Use small stitches or it will bunch up. Daniel obeyed, the material held near his nose now, the needle going in and out. You said they cut your hours. It's why I had to take on more at Mike's. Yeah, well, doesn't stop them from keeping me beyond what they're paying me. You ask Mike for a raise? Daniel closed his mouth and stitched. You little pansy. She slapped the back of his head and padded to the kitchen. You ain't got the balls for it. I haven't worked there a year yet. Where's the rule you gotta wait for a year? When did you last ask? They ain't gonna give me a raise at that place. The walls are barely standing as it is. Customers petering out every month, all of them headed over to that new place across town. Club. something. She lit another cigarette and took a long drag. Why don't you apply there? The water stopped running. Daniel heard a gentle plurp as Tony stepped into the tub. You're always saying you want something better. No response. Daniel was about to turn around when he heard car keys jangling. Hopping on one leg in the kitchen, Valerie pulled sneakers over her bare feet, her cigarette dangling from her lips, the car keys tucked into one palm. An old familiar panic rose inside Daniel's chest, his fingers gripping the needle and fabric. Asking would be useless. He waited, holding his breath. When both shoes were on, she grabbed the windbreaker off the back of the dining room chair and opened the door. Before stepping through, she looked back at him, her hazel eyes shiny, and pulled her cigarette out. 
Sick of you saying what I do ain't good enough. You're spoiled, Danny. A spoiled brat. I should kick you out and let you see what it's like when it's all on your shoulders. Then you can tell me where to go apply. She slammed the door behind her. Pictures rattled on the wall. A few seconds later, Daniel heard the engine roar on the old Pontiac, dirt kicking up against the side of the trailer as she spun out. That mom? Tony called. She'll be back. He focused on the half-sewn patch. Where'd she go? Daniel paused. Work. But it's her day off. They called her in. The water splashed. Daniel imagined his little brother punching it in frustration. But his own shoulders had come back down, his breathing returning to normal. The trailer was quiet, the smoke and tobacco smell dissipating. He pushed the needle through the denim and the patch. Small stitches. Brent pulled off the highway and parked the truck in front of the rest area bathrooms. Daniel reached for the door handle, eager for some fresh air. He was hungry too, but without cash or a credit card, he couldn't raid the vending machines, and he wasn't asking Jolene for more money. High tops quiet on the warm cement sidewalk, he headed to the restroom, where he splashed water on his face and tried to figure out how he was going to get hold of some cash. Coach Greg would float him some if he could reach him. The next time he had access to a computer, he'd ask. Outside again, the sun beamed heat on his face. Cars whizzed by on the highway. Dreading the return to the truck and seeing no sign of Jolene, Daniel went the opposite direction, toward the back of the rest area grounds, behind the bathrooms and picnic tables, until he was looking out onto the countryside beyond. About a quarter mile away rested a single house, two more about the same distance behind it, a red barn just past the tips of the nearby trees. It was quiet and peaceful, a sharp contrast to the busy highway behind him. He longed to go toward it, find a place among the tall grasses and lie down and stare up at the sky. Somewhere in his memory he recalled living in a place like this, before Valerie changed. A place where he ran around on a green lawn wearing navy blue swim trunks while she stood on the front steps trying to spray him with the water hose. He could hear her laughter as clear as it had once been and for a moment let the memory play, allowing himself to feel the water splashing his skin. Valerie's face scrunched up in delight as she tried to catch him without getting too wet herself. Then the yard and the hose and his mother's happy face faded from view, and he walked back toward the highway, the traffic noise growing louder in his ears. Between the men's and women's restrooms, he found a map hung on the brick wall. A red You Are Here star oriented him to his location. They were only about an hour out of Kearney, Nebraska. He'd slept longer than he thought. Behind him, the Ford was still parked up against the curb, the Suzuki secure in the bed. But there was no one inside. She wanted to draw a little. Daniel jumped. 
Brent had managed to sneak up on him and now stood beside him, looking out on the lot. He wore wire-rimmed sunglasses, his eyes in shadow. Her sketchbook, he said by way of explanation. Daniel remembered seeing her with it when they'd walked out of the chicken cafe. She has talent, Brent said. Just lacks focus. Mind always. He made a flitting motion with his fingers off to the side of his head. What? Distracted. Brent took off the sunglasses and leveled a calm gaze at Daniel. How did you guys meet, anyway? A Honda SUV pulled into the lot, drawing their attention. She came to a show, Daniel said. A show? Freestyle motocross. Brent looked at him blankly, so Daniel explained, motorcycles doing extreme jumps. Oh. They have shows with that. How old is this guy? Where? Des Moines is the one she came to, but we tore all over. Brent watched as a pot-bellied man exited the Honda and made his way to the restroom. When they were alone again, he glided to the nearest picnic table on the right, his loafers brushing easily through the grass. Daniel enjoyed the space of his absence, but then figured it would be rude not to follow. The table was shaded by a good-sized cottonwood and cool to the touch. He sat down opposite Brent but stayed alert, hoping to spot Jolene. Why would she go to something like that? Brent said continuing their conversation. Why not? He pushed a thumbnail between his teeth. Can't imagine it. It's exciting. We go right over the audience's heads. Daniel was defending himself. He didn't know why he cared one way or the other. You're pretty high, then. Daniel traced an arc over the tabletop. You run the bike up the ramp and then you jump. While you're in the air, you do stunts. Flips, whips, turns, tail grabs. Tail grab? You grab the back of the bike. While you're in the air. Brent's eyebrows shot up. So you could fall. I mean, before you hit the other ramp? The bike rolled down the ramp alone. Daniel shook his head, ridding himself of the haunting image. If you don't know what you're doing, he said. They both sat silent for a moment then. She came to your show and... Daniel shifted his weight on the hard wooden bench. The guy was getting too personal. It wasn't his business. Still, he could remember it like it was yesterday. Jolene waiting in line after the show, joining the others who wanted to meet the riders backstage. She'd stood out that shocking head of red hair. When she'd shifted over to his line, he'd gotten nervous and signed faster, moving the other fans through until she stood in front of him. Your autograph, she'd said, pulling her sleeve down to bare her shoulder. Daniel remembered the alabaster skin, the little red freckles in it, and though he'd tried, he couldn't mar it with the sharpie, so he'd kissed the shoulder instead and given her a free signed T-shirt. 
The guys had ribbed him about that one, but Jolene had given him a different smile then. One that was a little sad and a little smoldering. So that when an hour later he found her standing at the gate, he couldn't say he was entirely surprised. Brent was staring at him. A hard stare. It was a long time ago, Daniel said. What about you? How did you two meet? Art class, Brent said, in Omaha. She was one of my students. She has a good eye. Was a fan of my work. Was that all one needed to qualify as having a good eye? How long? About a year ago. Daniel did the math in his head. Jolene had said it had been over a year since they'd been together. So this guy had come along... When? After they'd broken up? Daniel couldn't remember that part. They'd had an amazing week in Des Moines, then exchanged emails and texts for months. They'd planned to meet for Christmas, but then her mother had gotten sick. After that? He must have done something wrong. What kind of art do you teach? he asked. Drawing and painting, mostly. So, Jolene? Pencil. Charcoal. Daniel nodded. I appreciate you giving me a ride, he said. It's fine. Brent rubbed his nose and leaned forward, bringing one knee up to his chest. It was kind of funny watching her freak out, he smiled. She was surprised I could see you. Daniel's gaze jerked to his face. She didn't think that would happen. Why not? Daniel uttered a half-hearted chuckle. I mean, that would be weird. Brent was still smiling in a secretive way. Who knows? I can't figure her out sometimes. He glanced at Daniel. All her talk about ghosts and all. Daniel looked across the rest area grounds, turning that one around in his head. Either Brent was trying to act like he knew more than he did, or he did know more than he was letting on. He could have seen the articles about Daniel's death, but he acted like he didn't even know what motocross was. So you... Daniel began. But Brent was focused intensely on the table. Daniel followed his gaze and saw a black beetle making its way across the wood. Brent lowered one finger to follow along behind it. You ever feel like it's right behind you? He said in a subdued voice. Sense it there? A hand just waiting to edge you over the cliff? Not sure what you mean, Daniel said. You're up in the air. Your bike falls away underneath you. For a moment, you must feel it. Daniel's stomach dropped, the image returning in his mind, the bike rolling down the ramp alone. No, he didn't want to feel that again. Even a creature as simple as this, Brent went on. It knows. 
something big is coming. He brought his finger down just enough to hold the beetle suspended, its little legs struggling to propel it forward, its antennae waving wildly. I think it's just scared, Daniel said. Brent waited another few seconds, then lifted his finger. The beetle scurried away underneath the table. No way to tell, I guess, he said. It's just a bug, right? He gazed at Daniel, put his sunglasses back on, then stood up, stretched his spine, and started toward the sidewalk. Daniel watched his back, wondering what the hell all that was about. Whatever it was, he felt shaky again, like he had after the train engine had nearly severed his fingers. He moved his gaze. On the other side of the rest area, Jolene approached through the grass. Damn. Despite his best intentions, he'd failed to spot her first. She and Brent met in the middle near the green metal trash cans in the Honda SUV. There they hesitated, observing one another. And then Brent cupped his hand on the back of her neck. Holding her that way, he steered her toward Daniel. Jolene's gaze fell on him. Her smile came quickly, suddenly. An unplanned flash of teeth. It lifted Daniel out of his shoes. It was all he could do not to run to meet her. Daniel and Tony crashed through the front door, stumbling on tired feet into Pastor Gus Handley's house. Daniel turned on the light, illuminating the interior of the modest home in the old part of Butte, the air smelling of cat food and faded coffee. Gus's nearly six-foot-tall mountain man watched them from the corner of the living room. A wooden sculpture had held a rifle against its ribs, beaver pelts slung over its shoulder, a long knife sheathed at its belt. The face was smoothed oak wood, eyes deep-set under a heavy brow, lips curled as if it were looking into the sun. Don't shoot, Max, it's us, Tony said to the sculpture as he passed dragging his backpack behind him. He's still wearing the hat. Daniel eyed the purple stocking cap Tony had placed on top of the sculpture's head on a previous visit. The multicolored pom-pom flopped over by its ear. It was the most recent wardrobe addition. Older items included one of their mother's pink beaded necklaces and Tony's old Superman belt. He's not a damn drag queen. Gus walked in behind them, balancing a large red cooler against his hip. A wiry man in his late sixties, he was still muscular, his arms tanned a golden brown. A black cowboy hat hit his bald head, making him appear younger than his years, cowboy boots clumping over the linoleum floor. Tony laughed, dropped the pack by the couch, and dashed into the bathroom. Daniel helped Gus set the cooler on the kitchen counter. Why didn't you take them off? he asked. Kid would just find something worse to put on him. Gus glanced at the sculpture. Before you know it, the poor son of a bitch will be wearing a bra and panties. Daniel grinned, then took the cover off the cooler. The three of them had hiked at least twenty miles around the Twin Lakes in a weekend.
they were dead on their feet, the mountains having deposited the delicious heaviness of nature's fatigue in their muscles. Daniel was grateful for it, though, so he took over the job of storing away the leftover food and shooed Gus out of the kitchen. It was because of the pastor they were able to camp at all, say nothing of the other things he'd done for them. A pastor was supposed to serve his community, but Gus had gone overboard when it came to Daniel and his brother. Daniel didn't know of any other boys the pastor took camping or hunting, or whom he let crash at his house whenever they wanted to. Cooler empty, food stowed in the refrigerator, Daniel parked himself in the forest green recliner. Gus had already settled into his favorite leather lounger and closed his eyes, his thick fingers folded over his belly. On the mantel, the antique mahogany clock rang out the late hour, eleven chimes hailing their return. Daniel's breathing had just started to slow when a cat meowed. Bones, Gus sighed. One of these days I gotta teach you how to feed yourself. The calico purred and brushed white and orange hairs on Gus's jeans. It had been well-fed, that much was plain. The bones so prominent when it first started coming around, the reason for its name, were no longer part of its physique. Come on, you old cuss. Gus pushed himself up and out of his chair. Let's see if you're really out of food or if you're just lying to me. Tony emerged from the bathroom and dropped onto the striped couch Gus had picked up at the Goodwill shop. On the wall over his head rested an oversized photograph of a bull moose. Daniel studied it, still impressed with the quality of the shot. The animal stared right into the camera lens, broad antlers stretched for miles on either side of his head. Water dripped from his wide muzzle into the lake, a few strands of marshy greens held tightly between his lips. I ever tell you about that old moose up there? Gus reappeared behind him, his hand in the back of the chair, fingers ripe with the smell of the trout he'd just given the cat. Daniel winked at Tony, who smiled back with sleepy eyes. It's been a while, he said. Let me paint a picture for you. Gus eased himself back down into his chair and held his hands up in the shape of a frame, his voice taking on the deep resonance he used for sermons. You're up in those grand Rocky Mountains. A little time in God's good country. You make yourself a pretty nice camp in a clearing. You catch some fresh fish, fry them up, and sleep overnight in your tent. You wake up the next morning with your brain all fuzzy, and head to the lake to snap some pictures and pump some fresh water through your little antibacterial filter. Both boys had heard the story several times before, but some of the weariness fled Tony's gaze as he concentrated on Gus's face. You walk along, not thinking about anything in particular, half of you still zonked out in that sleeping bag. The air feels alive, and you're looking forward to that first taste of fresh, cool lake water. You come around the corner and lift your head. Gus leaned forward and aimed his gaze at the photograph. And right there in front of you, not more than fifteen feet away, is the biggest, most fierce, dark-haired son of a 
bitch you've ever seen in your life. Tony chuckled. It was always funny to hear a preacher swear. He's got eyes black as lava and mighty antlers big enough to carry a man to his grave. With a chest three times the breadth of yours and shoulders like a damn grizzly bear's. What did you do? Tony asked, though he already knew the answer. I just stand there. I mean, this thing is massive. He lifts his head and looks at me like I'm intruding on him, you know? It's his home, and what the hell am I doing there? Tony chuckled some more. If he'd wanted to, he could have devoured that ground between me and him in two strides, no problem. I would have been no more for this world. Fertilizer for the next batch of greens to grow up the following spring. But he didn't, Tony said. Bones returned from the kitchen, licking his chops. Gus reached down and ran his fingers along the animal's spine, the vertebrae curving in response. He might have, if I'd done what I wanted to do. Run like hell, Daniel said. But I knew which one of us would win that race. So you stayed? Tony was up on his elbows now. I stood there shaking in my boots. Gus brought his hand back from petting the cat and stroked his chin. I said to myself, I may not be as big, I may not be as strong, and I may not be as mean as this monster in front of me, but on this brilliant morning, at the edge of this beautiful lake, in the heart of these fine mountains, I have just as much right to be here, and there's plenty of room for the both of us. The boys watched him, waiting. Gus sighed and sat back in his chair. How long did you stand there? Tony asked. We had a good long staring contest, that old bull and me, before I finally got up the nerve to look through my camera. He shook his head. I'd planned to take a picture of the lake. Tony turned to look at the photo above him. That's a lot better picture. Gus smiled showing the one cracked canine tooth he'd never gotten fixed. Daniel studied the photograph again, the bull just as Gus had described him, dark-eyed and oozing power from every brown and black hair on its body. So you got your water then? he asked, wanting to hear the final punchline. Gus pulled his shoulders up in a slow shrug. I wasn't really that thirsty. Both boys laughed, the sound of their voices filling the small living room, the old man watching them with a wry smile on his face. Well... Tony and Daniel were lucky to have someone like Gus in their lives, and it's nice to have a better understanding of the strong bond between these brothers. 
But as for Jolene's boyfriend, Brent, well, he's a little strange, right? No wonder Daniel doesn't like him. But can you feel the sparks flying between Jolene and Daniel? I wonder how Brent will handle that. Stay tuned to piece together more of the puzzle that is Daniel's new reality. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after they're released. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms in our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content related to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet. Mm-hmm.